Crank up the music, warm up the sports car, and give yourself over to your most alienating vocational obsessions, because it's time to go manhunting. That's right, we are continuing with this project. Is this what you're doing over here? This is, I was delighted to hear, I was like, the thing I was most excited was like, what's Rob's intro? What is it? Like, I, I, what have I been missing by not being on this one? Well, the, the the first was sort of our, our beta launch of uh, of manhunting. Uh, we were considering going down the manhole. Um, still- <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote that in the newsletter and then was like, huh, I feel like that was not actually what they settled on, but I might just leave it here and see if Rob's notices. It's the unofficial I, I- title. <laughs> Uh, and it's fitting that yet last time was the uh, the the beta launch of the show because to a degree we were talking about a beta launch of a film here, uh, so we will we will get to that in a moment. But yeah, we are continuing with this project, and we work through in which we work through the filmography of Michael Mann, one of our most singular directors, whose action dramas are beloved objects for me and two of our guests today. Uh, first, we have Nextlanders Alex Navarro. Thank you so much for having me back. I am stoked. We are also joined once again by Dia Latina. Hey, what's up? See, I, 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 you should never have told me that it's Latina and not Latina. One of these days, I'm going to have to just strangle you because I'm just it's going to drive me insane. <laughs> well, you, you know, you could just start firing back with calling me Zatnia. Uh, that could <laughs> that, that would sort me right the fuck out. That's like every time I have a conversation with my dad, and he's like, "What's Patrick Klepek doing?" <laughs> <laughs> Is that my daughter or is that your your, your father? I don't know. It's, uh... <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be talking about man's second feature film, uh, 1983's historical horror, The Keep. And here with our second episode of Manhunting, we come to the greatest exception to the director's consistent rules of style and one must admit, meticulous polish. Uh, in fact, some of you may have realized something weird is going on due to the fact that the film is barely available uh, for streaming and then only in standard def, as far as I can tell. Uh, this is not a film that man has ever revisited with a director's cut, something he habitually tinkers with on a number of his other films, uh, nor is it a film he or a lot of his fans really even acknowledge. It's not considered like an essential man unless you're podcasting with weirdos and degenerates. Uh, I, unfortunately, made the decision to do exactly that, uh, and we couldn't start doing manhunting uh, until Alex and Dia had assurances uh, that we would, in fact, be hitting the keep uh, on this journey. See, I always thought it was going to be the one-off, like, episode, and then you were like, no, no, we're doing doing the thing, so. Yeah, I mean, you can't do the thing without the keep. That's that's very true. Uh, it's it's just not manhunting uh, without the keep. And how could we talk about the keep without bringing on Waypoint's <laughs> resident schlock horror expert, Patrick Lepic? Well, I, I think the, the way to show another person this film is to edit the fact Michael Mann's name off it. Watch the film and then afterwards reveal to them. Now, that was directed by Heat's. Michael Mann. Um, this move, I uh, I spent a, a lot of my uh, paternity leave uh, for my second daughter uh, not playing games. And I remember Dia and I had several Twitter exchanges over this where uh, I'd have to take a shift after my wife went to, to sleep earlier. Um, and I would just load up Amazon Prime video and they just have the deepest roster of like 80s, 90s. Um, 
uh, VHS trash in which it's got a good title, a bad description, um, and the movie's like 101 minutes long and, and barely makes it there, but has like one good practical effect where you go, hell yeah. That was that was worth my time. Yes. Sick box art. And that like that's what I did for like the better part of two months um, uh, watching movies like The Nest and uh, and things of that. This feels like right out of that. This movie uh, like (laughs) maybe there are Michael Mannisms in here that you can uh, you can uh, uh, enlighten me to given that I'm not like particularly uh, uh, versed in man's history other than. Like a lot of people having seen Collateral because that was like very popular like when it came out. Uh, but this movie is just truly a delight. Like watching a really good director make a horrible piece of VHS trash is like is my dream. Like frequently when I talk, if I had a magic wand, I was telling someone recently uh, and I could just 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 wish anything, you know, yeah, sure. Like world peace, yada, yada. But what if <laughs> I could get the world's best directors to make schlock films like i want to see martin scorsese's friday the 13th and uh, like just see that like take their eye to like my favorite trashy premises and and just see what they produce and the key feels like i like walked into a parallel dimension it was like ashley patrick you had that wand and michael mann made some really (laughs) weird horror trash um and then realized he did it and never talked about it again um and what's even worse is that when you read about the production of the movie which was I have read the Wikipedia page for this several times because people have recommended it when I've made my Shocktober list. Like, oh, you should watch The Keep at some point. It's like a weird relic um, that nobody talks about. And then reading, oh, that his, uh, you know, uh, like production or who is it? like the, someone died right at the end uh, or beginning of post-production. And there's like a bunch of horribly violent shots they just were never finished and in the film because that person, he was the only person who had to finish them. So it's also kind of tragic because there's like a much schlockier, there's like a three hour and 20 minute schlocky version of this that I would love to see and just can't exist because unfortunately the person who has the knowledge to finish it uh, uh, died um, long, long time ago. So in short, I, I loved it, but it's it's terrible, but I loved it. Uh, and I think one of the questions looming over this is... Would that three-hour cut loop around to being a Michael Mann film and not, in fact, <laughs> like B-grade schlock? That's the big open question. But here are the broad outlines uh, of The Keep. It is a movie about a small unit of German soldiers being sent to a remote Carpathian village at the zenith of the Third Reich's power. They've been sent to occupy a mysterious ancient fortress that positively crackles with cursed energy and blown out tangerine dream synthesizers in no time at all. They have unleashed an ancient evil that starts killing German troops. The SS shows up to begin reprisal killings against the villagers and they have dragooned a Jewish scholar of the fortress uh, played unevenly. I would say by, is that Ian McKellen? Yeah, it is. Ian McKellen. Unevenly, that- but enthusiastically. I, the, the, the moment, uh, I, in my mind, uh, Ian McKellen has always been old. Um, the reveal where like I'd watched that I'd watched him in the movie for a decent period of time. And until I'm jumping ahead. But, you know, when he gets clean and like is like, uh, you know, uh, is kind of cleaned up. I was like, oh, that can't be. That's not Gandalf. That's that, you know, and uh, then I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's him. He was like young and extremely attractive at one point. You've never saw the, the, the young twink photos of Ian McKellen. That I have like him. when those have floated up, but it has. Like, I've never seen 
like of just a film where oh, it looks yeah. <laughs> like it feels like I'm watching like de-age CG technology when it's like, no, he was just young and like made movies when he was in his 20s. And well, not only was he really good. Not only was he young, I think this was his first big production outside of the UK. Like oh, this wow. was like his first like Hollywood yeah. film. You need a quick injection of gravitas. You bring on uh, Shakespearean stage presence. Hell yes. And slap some really bad aging makeup on him uh, and call it a day. He's got some good overacting. He's got some good overacting in this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, he goes that for I, it. I just 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 delighted in. So in the midst of all of this, uh, a very weird Scott Glenn shows up and has <laughs> sex with Ian McKellen's daughter. We learn the fortress is a prison of some kind uh, for a malevolent spirit. And Scott Glenn is like the ancient jail jailer. And in the end, all the Germans are slaughtered. The villagers are losing their minds. The spirit is finally banished. And Scott Glenn has sacrificed himself to seal the tomb. Now, I know. I've alight, I've alighted a lot there, but in mm-hmm. fairness to me, so does this movie. The movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the thing I've been wrestling with uh, before we get to our, our reactions is why this feels like such a conventional example of B-horror at times, despite the fact that its cast is stacked to the rafters. Like, in addition to Glenn and McKellen, you have Gabriel Byrne as the SS commander, uh, Jürgen Prochnow as the burned-out army officer, Alberta Watson as Ava uh, Kuza, the, uh, like, scholar's daughter, uh, Robert Prosky, who was the, who was evil Leo in <laughs> Thief. He's playing the local priest. And somewhere in there is William Morgan Shepard. Like, this movie on paper, should be like, oh, what an interesting turn at horror for Michael Mann. And yet, and Alex, yet. I must ask you, yes, uh, with this context and the long and accomplished history of Michael Mann, what the fuck happened here? There are answers to some of these questions and complete non-answers to others. So the one I could never quite figure out from all my reading on this is what actually brought Michael Mann to this project in the first place. Like, when it, the little bits of interview I found with him where he talks about it, he pretty flatly says, I don't like the book this is based on. Like, it is, he does not have very <laughs> super kind things to say about the novel that this was written about, but his goal here was to make, in his words, an expressionistic fairy tale. Like, he wanted to make this very sort of haunting adult style fairy tale story out of this which you know on its face is maybe enough reason already for the author to maybe not love what happened with this adaptation but just so many things went wrong over the course of this thing it was supposed to be a 13 week shoot which took place in a rock quarry in wales uh that shoot got delayed a bunch because of rain and also various other production woes Man himself, uncharacteristically, maybe because it's his second movie, I don't know, but he was very indecisive, apparently, about a lot of things on this movie. Certain aspects of the script, the design of of Molisar, the main villain, uh, kept changing over the course of the film, which I imagine was also part of the reason why the effects supervisor, uh, Wally Vivers, I believe was his name. Uh Yes, he died two weeks into post-production and did not tell anyone else what his plans were for <laughs> the, like, the effects they, shots. Like the end, the, end of the end of the movie, when you walk into all the dead Nazis, uh, which is like a bunch of cool shots, they, they shot all their deaths with like a huge scene with like their like heads exploding and just 
he didn't tell anyone how to how to how to yeah. finish it. So they're just like, whoops, <laughs> can't put in this like climactic sequence in the film. And you can kind of understand why man might have just trusted him to handle this stuff. Cause like he, he was a very well-known effects supervisor. He worked on like 2001, you know, a bunch of other like very significant films. So you're like, okay, yes, I trust this person to handle this stuff. You don't do that anymore. Like make sure he's at least told other people what he plans to do. But so like all this stuff got very messy. It started going very heavily over budget. And so you know, man was stuck directing, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 260 individual effects shots himself, which he was not really trained to do. And that left him in a position where he couldn't really film the the climax that he wanted. He had to do a much more truncated ending because Paramount was just like, fuck, no, you, you don't get the money for this. You're already over budget. And so his initial cut was somewhere around 210 minutes, which you're never going to get them to release a movie that long. And all assembly cuts are too long anyway. But so he got it down to, I think, just over about two hours and they test ran this cut, uh, you know, focus groups and whatnot. And it was received very poorly. So he the studio, without man's knowledge, cut it down to about 96 minutes. And in the process of that. Pretty much destroyed certain aspects of the story that would have actually explained what the hell is going on for a lot of like the main stuff, like all the stuff involving Scott Glenn. There were multiple scenes that would have totally explained why he's in this movie and what <laughs> and he's doing. And why they doing. have sex, right? Like if I, yes. I was reading, they're like, so one of the things cut from this movie is. Why are they boning? Uh, <laughs> like, how did, yes. how, did this, how did we get to this point? Because I feel like I I had the movie running and I had to answer an email. I looked over and there was a sex scene happening. I'm like, how did just we like, arrive in? I mean, have, <laughs> have tastes changed since the eight? Like, was Scott Glenn a was Scott Glenn a secret like 70s and 80s sex symbol where like he shows up on the screen? somebody's getting naked and doing it i was like is that am i just like where audiences is this like a <clears throat> is this like a burt reynolds situation where audiences at the time would have been like oh yeah he shows up it's on i mean god he hadn't even played alan shepherd by this part yeah like he'd been i think the, that year he was also in the right stuff which you know a, another movie where scott glenn's raw sexuality absolutely comes out <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. Like, when I look at Scott Glenn, like, I think of that, like, my friend's dad down the street, whose most noteworthy characteristic is that he smoked a lot. Like, that dude <laughs> looks like what cigarette smoke smells like. Like, I don't think sex when I think of him. But Michael Mann, different creature entirely. Michael Mann sees the raw sexual power of Scott Glenn, and he put it on the screen for all to see. You got a face like velour. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Ultimately, like the the studio, well, th th again, open question: Did the studio butcher this, or did the studio just cut their losses? I think it's it maybe a little bit of both. Like, I think a two hour cut would have certainly solved some of the problems with this movie, but you know, would that have made it a good movie? I don't know, but I think it's probably one that would have been received better. But nonetheless, this is the version they put out, and then you know, in subsequent years, I mean, it flopped at the box office. Limited theatrical run in Europe did not do very well there either. It did get put out on VHS and Laserdisc. But for many, many years, this thing was just not available anywhere. Like it it got dropped on like Netflix and Amazon Prime. Very surprisingly, I think about 10 years ago. And then but that was like a shitty SD version of it. And then just recently, it finally showed up like some Australian boutique label finally convinced them to put it out. 
And I'm not really sure how they did that, because at one point, I think Michael Mann actively said, I don't want this out anymore. I don't want people releasing this movie anymore. Like he actively interfered in a DVD release. Well, it doesn't sound it sounds like it's it's the, the raw materials don't exist to even like go back and do like some sort of new take on it. We're like, you no, can go back and not. revisit like like the effects are like I was reading a, a quote where someone asked like, hey, why can't you just go back, like do some sort of 4K restoration? Like, why can't you, uh, you know, like just add those effects now and like come up with some solution? And it, it was like, you just can't like it's just all a bunch of raw materials that just cannot really be mashed uh, t- together, but who like who knows? Maybe he, he also sounds like he loathes the project so much that like is that actually an excuse or 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 he just doesn't want to revisit like a really troubling time in his filmography? Like it's surprising that any like you know original footage of this still even exists at this point. You know, like yeah, who like, archived you know, it and why? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Like who who I want to know who is the one that carried the torch for <laughs> the the original footage. Well, so the the wild thing is I don't know how. Uh, common or uncommon this this was like when you were having uh you know it was like a big deal when like a film would have like its tv debut right Mm -hmm. um and so i guess part of it what was curious about the keep was that like when this was adapted for like debut on on tv there are scenes not in the film that are in the tv adaptation of of the keep and so dia to your point like Somebody was holding on to that shit because they like put in deleted scenes in, I guess, in like the promo commercials in the film itself. There's like an expanded version of this movie was re-edited. And so some some of those pieces might might exist somewhere. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, when we get to the ending, because like that is where the extra footage appears. It's like it kind of reworks the ending to completely change the tone of it. But we'll get there. So the other part, the other thing that's this part of this is in a lot of ways the film is incoherent some of this is down to uh just the way it came together in post but also this does bring us to this idea of this is based on a book that man didn't particularly like or want to directly adapt which we saw work out well in thief like thief the studio had optioned uh you know a couple like news articles basically about uh bands of thieves in chicagoland or or something and thief and thief basically has man discarding that work and making his own film with his own advisors uh it seems like something similar is happening here and i'm curious dia you're familiar with the book i'm curious do you think like does by breaking from the book man do the story a disservice like or are there problems with this film that are kind of baked in uh to the source material i mean so i think the problem is like there's two ways to make this movie you either need to go lord of the rings and you do do the two and a half hour movie or you make it like 67 minutes like you make the 70 minute cut of this and just make it just like a tone poem and it's just a weird you know we don't explain anything. We don't try to explain anything. It's just a series of images and Tangerine Dream. And people are in and out and just kind of go, wow, that was weird. Um, because there is there is a lot of the book. Like, you know, the, the movie cuts out the entire... It goes straight from, you know, uh, Magda and, and, and Glenn, um, you know, meeting one another. And, like, uh, then they're just, like, having weird sex. Um, like almost instantaneously. Whereas like in like the book, we actually have the building of a relationship, but like the movie goes from suddenly they're madly in love with one another. What? Um, 
you know, we 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 cut out everything about who um you know this 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 uh the adversary is in general um uh from the from the the movie there's no like you know there's no there's so much backstory about why scott glenn is this weird like leathery you know supernatural assassin you know why he's kept this this entity in the basement what what the entity even is like all that's gone and without any of that context it's just kind of like why are we here this is just you know, there's some random evil thing in a castle. <laughs> then this weird dude shows up and kills it. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> and everyone had a great when time. He, <laughs> like, yeah, this, he, when he shows like, up with his lightsaber and just, you know, <laughs> strikes him down. All right, time to go to work. <laughs> and it's one of those things. It's like, you know, like the kind of the, the, the thing that I always compare it to is there's the, the night gallery um, uh, episode. The devil is not mocked, which is about. Dracula, Count Dracula telling his grandson, I think it's his grandson, um, about the time he killed the Nazis in Romania. And it's like, you know, uh, a bunch of Nazis take shelter while they're in this castle while they're trying to, you know, uh, hunt out partisans. And like, they end up um, uh, like meeting this count and the count's like, come in, have dinner, blah, 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 blah. And then they're all dead. Like, he just, Dracula just kills them. And at the very end, Dracula's like, I'm actually the leader of the secret resistance. I kill Nazis. <laughs> and that's some choice fanfic. And like, that it's, rules. It's, 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 it fucking rules. Like it's a great episode of night gallery, but like this kind of is just like you, we couldn't even make that out of the keep, which like doesn't really work because all right, so let's, let's, let's I'll just, just basically the plot is um, Rassalam is this ancient sorcerer who has been imprisoned by um, uh, Glenn, who's actually named as Gleeken, and he is like <laughs> he's basically like the gunslinger, which actually I think comes out after um, the Keep novel wise, because yeah, because mm. that was what. Patrick, do you remember when The Gunslinger comes out? Uh, well, there's like the original, then there's the re-release. Like I didn't yeah, read it until the original. Until Til King went back and like uh, canonized it with the rest of the Dark Tower. Um, but yeah, that's. I mean, he that's it's like early '80s, right? Like when I think 1982, uh, so a year yes. after, like or I guess yeah, uh, a year yeah, because the Keep came out in '81, right? The book, yeah. So it's basically you know, and this this does become. It branches out into uh, Paul Wilson's uh, kind of just it's called the the adversary cycle. Now, um, when I was reading it in like the third grade, it was called the night world cycle. <laughs> but. Um, uh, is it a it, good cycle or is it, it like it's 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 weird. It's not bad. Um, one of the things that I'm always kind of like comparing it to is like. Um, 80s, 80s anime. Like there's a lot mm-hmm. of like you know if you if you if you like this go watch you know uh, the uh, Megami Tensei anime go watch Doomed Megalopolis go watch Demon City Sinjuku there is this kind of you know broad spectrum of like devils coming up that like decide they want to plunge the world into darkness that is like a staple in like you know horror sci-fi anime um, that this kind of does become uh, and. Like, but so so Scott Glenn's character is actually this champion of light. And he comes from this like, you know, this group of people that are dedicated from the first the first age of man, I think is. Yeah, the first age of man. 
who are dedicated to like defeating evil and ensuring that like light persists and things like that. And like, you know, we cut out why he doesn't have a reflection in the books. He ha- doesn't have a reflection because um, they take away his like his ability to kind of perceive himself so that he doesn't have like this sense of, you know, uh, straying from his duty. Uh, which is, you know, kind of keeping Rassilom, this evil sorcerer entity, in check. Wait, um, wait because so does, he, does, does he have sex in the book then? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, and he does. He does. He falls in love with, with Magda. And, yeah, yeah, Gle- dude, That's Gleek not straying from his duty. I'm trying to, trying to figure out what the rules no. are for the this champion of life. Yeah, no, Gleekin totally fucks. Um, <laughs> and like, uh, God. But also he doesn't like, uh, spoilers Gleekin doesn't die in the book nor does he die well I guess he right in the like the cut that like, yeah okay yeah uh, man like, wanted to shoot like yeah he also would have uh stuck around or did yeah, stick around he, he, I, can, he I don't know if they shot it or it, did, it just didn't appear in the final uh cut of the movie yeah. but it was yeah. that, the, that was the same approach was supposed to happen god it's really it's frustrating hearing some of that too because the thing is what you just described is like a perfect Michael Mann hero in some ways. The guy doesn't have a reflection because he can't be reminded of his own humanity because he's all about the work. He's Are too severe to even perceive himself. Well, and so and so this this franchise eventually you end up in uh, the the Night World book in like ninety two, uh, and that is where Rassalam has come back. And has plunged the world into kind of what's creeping darkness. Like nights are just growing steadily longer. Um, and which that means Rassalam can like bring up more demons at the time. And Gleekin is an old dude now. He's like a hundred years old or whatever because, um, and so he basically has to like still like, you know, kind of get the gang together and go defeat evil. Um, as an old man who's just still just been dedicated to the work all this time, even though he's like been trying to live as a mortal. Like, so it's, it's a man shit. This could have been a franchise. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but then what does it, again, fascinating question. What if Michael Mann discovers his real life's work is telling the story of the night world books. Um, and just <laughs> does that for the rest of his life on a series Ooh. of diminishing budgets. With diminishing what does he make immediately capitalists? after this? He was so immediately after this, he was so burned by this experience that he retreated to television and started developing Miami Vice. Oh, wow. And, wow. So story. that is a real yeah. like that's one of those big kind of like uh, fork of the road moments for a filmmaker. That yeah. is I'm not going to say Miami Vice never would have happened if it was for, wasn't for the keep failing. But it seems like <laughs> that maybe hastened some things along. Well, Miami Vice certainly does help give him the keys to the kingdom. Right. Yeah. Like it is at like I think after this. Whatever buzz was around man uh, as a rising director was probably kind of stilled for the moment. And then Miami Vice turns him into, and this also changes the trajectory of his career. Miami Vice makes him like this, um, like minister of cool of 80s culture. Uh, and that sort of sticks with him too, but also makes him a director who at times seems like he will become dated, uh, very, like in, in some weird ways. And we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so, real quick, I have to ask, how mm. did we all watch it? Because first of all, in the DM uh with with Alex, uh Alex has been uh dropping little different versions of the keep on our heads. Uh, I'm like a little imp. Just bringing <laughs> just, you little presents. 
just here's a different little cut. Uh, I think the one I watched, and I think this is the one I sent over to Patrick, is a – so I got it from mm-hmm. a friend of the show, uh, Andrew, who hooked us up with – This seemed like and- the Laserdisc version. That was my guess. I don't think it's Laserdisc. I don't I, think it that is. That looks like a print scan. I think it is a 35 millimeter print scan that has mm. been doing the rounds uh, on the internet. And it is, you know, it's not mastered. Like, it's not, it, it's got a lot of scratches on it. <laughs> no, I, was, I tried to watch it on, because uh, I read about the soundtrack and I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like, I'm going to listen to these synths on, like, my my proper, like, projector speakers. Oh, uh, no, fucked and- <laughs> Well, and my my wife is also working from home, and then like ten minutes into the movie, I realized I was I was like channeling the the volume all the way up to listen to the dialogue, and then the sense would kick in, and she's like, "Shut the fuck <laughs> up!" Like, what are you? And I was like, all right. and so then I retreated into my office, and I was still doing the same thing. I was still hammering the volume button on the remote, like rewinding like full conversation sections to be like. What, so, did they, what did they say? Fun fact, the audio mix is fucked in pretty much every version yeah. of the keep. I, that one in particular is definitely like the most fucked I've heard. But like there is like I don't think they actually finished the sound mix for this movie at any. Yeah, point. even watching it because I God, I think I watched this when I was like seven or eight, um, just renting it on VHS. And like the sound mix was never OK. It was yeah. always fucked. Like There's parts of the dialogue that just disappear. So. Yeah, but so the the thirty five millimeter scan because uh, I did do side by side like with um, Alex. You watched it off of a rip in your own shit edition. Yes, I, read, I I I own the DVD release that came out uh, last year on that Australian label. Uh, is that the and same? I did, as, I did I did watch the, the thirty five millimeter YouTube? print as well. What's that? Is that the same that's on YouTube? Because like you can't just rent it right now. So. I don't know, because the thing is, for a long time, the streaming version of this movie was the SD version that was taken from the VHS copy. And that's why Uh, it kind of looked like shit everywhere. The DVD version looks cleaner, hmm. but it's not, I mean, it's still DVD, like it's 480p, you know, it's not anything like super spectacular, but it just looks better, I think, than the the other versions I've seen. Um, And then, of course, at at the buzzer, you also submitted... Uh, and I didn't check out more than the last couple of minutes of this. That's one. all you need to see. The yeah. the uh, TV uh, cut of it, which has a slightly tweaked ending. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, I. I discovered also the 35 millimeter print did awaken something dark in me. Uh, it was like unseemly in the keep <laughs> where I was like. I need to find more just raw scans of prints for films that haven't been gotten proper re-releases. Because, like, first of all, the opening of that, each reel of the film is just beat to shit on the 35 millimeter mm-hmm. uh, scan. You can tell, like, it's the outer ring that has the most wear and tear on it. And then each reel, as it goes along, the image gets sharper and sharper and sharper until you're like, this looks pretty fucking good. Yeah. Like, this thing buries that DVD edition. And then the reel changes and it's back to just being beat to shit. And, like, there's yep. weird, like, uh, highlighter green dropouts, uh, which I assume is when the scan goes through, those are highlight those are scanned in that color to make it easier for digital correction after the fact i would think Um, so yeah yeah so i was like man i I wonder what other 35 millimeter prints are rattling around out there god God. you've given you've given rob like another rabbit hole to i'm gonna be hearing about 35 millimeter prints for the next (laughs) year on white point radio 
This is a dark path to go down, my friend. No, I no don't. more denoised anime for Rob. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, but the the thing is, what comes through in any edition is that um, it is like this is such a weird movie, and also. A real showcase of a showcase of Michael Mann's love for Tangerine Dream. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've alluded to the fact that this is his Tangerine Dream period. Uh, Tangerine Dream does the, the soundtrack to Thief. They will do the soundtrack for uh, Manhunter. But this one, I think, Dia, when you allude to like, you know, there's a version of this that's just like 70 minutes long, basically a silent film except for the score. Um, I like certainly that seems like the better version and in many ways the best of what Mann is accomplishing here because right from the first, like this is a movie that like what the characters are saying hardly matters at all. You could just mute the dialogue in this because everything is just being carried visually. And then the mood is entirely being set by this um, really like powerful synth heavy uh, soundtrack. Um, and we get sort of this creepy arrival uh, at the keep. And I, and I think, the the other part of this that doesn't work, like again, you start running the problems right away. I think the movie looks looks pretty good until they show up to the keep, and that set looks like shit. Yeah. Not not necessarily the interior of the keep, but the entire idea of the keep relative to this like tiny little uh, Carpathian village, which is the size of a postage stamp. The entire thing begins to feel like for one minute you're like. All right, yeah, World War II period piece, but like very Michael Mann soundtrack, cool. We're in something here. And the next minute, I'm like, is this Evil Dead? It wishes like, it was an Evil Dead, man. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't. Well, so, some of the some of the effects feel like they're right out of like a Raimi film. Like the yeah. <laughs> like the moment, like the heads where when a fog <laughs> is going through a hallway, um, and uh, the only thing that's missing is it being a first person camera as it stalks um the nazis as opposed to just like the, the way it's shot here which is like we'll be at the end of the hallway and watch this fog slowly approach us thank you very much um mm-hmm. uh but then when those heads popped uh i was i was delighted like the effects are like the kill effects in this that are are here uh and even like the 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 kind of like the way that like the i don't know the energy or essence whatever, whatever that eye effect is however you describe that like all that stuff is like really fun um uh and like i went from like what am i watching to still what am i watching but like mm-hmm. with a slightly different tone once some of the 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 gore effects started kicking in um because i thought they were like just a, really tonally adjacent to the movie that i thought i was getting um and that was even before the giant statue man showed up <laughs> and I, uh, or as he appears earlier as like a fog with a brain in it uh um, yes <laughs> just delightful well, and they really make good use of Michael Mann's kind of fondness, like, you know, developing fondness for alternating between extreme overcranking and extreme undercranking of the film. Like, he really loves playing with that throughout the 80s, from what I remember. But, like, yeah, like. It's the other part of this that's really striking is this also feels the most like a pastiche uh, in terms of, like, styles michael mann is trying to operate in which is weird because we saw thief and that's quintessentially man that is his that is his house style that is the type of movie he makes it's again very like almost documentary documentary like uh cinema verite style and here there seem to be so many things that he's playing with like parts of it are um 
when the caretaker of the keep shows up and gives his menacing speech of like, uh, it's, it's not a one scene character in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not a bad scene, but also I'm watching it and I'm like, this feels very much like, honestly, it, it, it feels like 1950s, uh, biblical Hollywood epic, mm-hmm. uh, like mode of storytelling, but then, uh, like, just a scene later, as you have, uh, you know, the the German sentry on guard, who we already know has been greedy. He's been he's been driven mad by by the notion that there's silver in these walls. The keep is sort of lined with these silver crosses uh, that are he's corrected their nickel. But while he's on guard, he starts hearing this sick synthwave soundtrack emerging from the keep with the with the wind um and, and glowing light he, coming from behind one of the crosses and the music gets louder as you get closer to the cross and he's just drawn in by the mesmerizing glow of the silver and the the, the power of tangerine dream and he goes and gets his buddy and they're like let's crack this bitch open and like get get at this tangerine dream uh let me at it and it goes real bad but also at the same time in the the way everything feels sort of cramped and constrained. I'm also like, is there a John Carpenter influence on this film is like part, but then also parts of it are like, uh, Weimar, like German expressionism where the entire thing is just weird and off kilter and mostly just carried visually. And it's like, there are so many things happening. I can can see Carpenter. Like you can see a lot of the fog in the keep. Literally Um, you can see the fog. Well, yeah, but yeah, but I mean like, 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 if you go back and rewatch the the fog, uh, which I've done like a couple of times the last couple of years, like you you can like, yeah, like you can see a lot. I mean, it's the same year or year before. I think uh, the fog is 1980. This is 81, right? But it's, well, this is 83, but he was shooting it in 81 or 82. Um, You know, so you have the beginning of like a, like a huge horror renaissance with like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. Like this is all going to happen over the next couple of years. But the keep comes before a lot of that turn happens. You have like early, you have a lot of early Carpenter, but before like about a lot of big like franchise turns that would define horror in, in the 80s. But yeah, I think like if if you had to asked me, Patrick, who do you think directed this? I'd be like, gosh, I guess there's a Carpenter film I haven't seen. And it's the keep. <laughs> and I can't. And, and, the, and the weird thing is like, I don't know, like, this is this is where I have trouble, like, judging context in some ways, because, like, my frame of reference is, you know, Patrick, you already cited it, like, Michael Mann makes movies like Heat, he makes yes. movies like Last of the Mohicans, big, meticulously shot, like, uh, like, very grounded, and, like, presented in, in as realistic a fashion as possible, and this feels like so much of a, a piece of its, of its time and place, but I'm all, I also have a hard time assessing, like, how much is he also just operating in the mode of horror that exists in this period? Like, are they all basically like this in some ways? Is it just an era defined by like weird smoke lighting uh, and like pounding synths? I mean, not to this degree. I no. Don't think. Yeah. Like. There, I mean, this there is definitely kind of you know the kind of the grand guignol of like nineteen seventies, like late seventies, like early eighties horror that like is present here, but this is just um so much. Like, w- what if what if like late seventies, early eighties horror, but too much? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if, and it's like before it's before. Like the like the eighties, a lot of it is like the like the creation of the creature feature, 
you know, where you have these iconic sort of like, you know, you know, uh, right. Hellraiser and Friday the third in Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. And like, this is play, like, it's interesting because I think Rob looking back on it, it feels like it's riffing on that era, but I almost completely by accident, like it feels of the era without necessarily feeling as though it is man directly responding to like what would end up like defining like, like Carpenter's like, you know, vision end up like, you know, circling into a lot of like eighties, um, a horror. Um, I don't know. I, they just, it's just, they mashed man, just mashed himself into the horror genre. Like, this is what you get out of it. And it's like strange and weird, but also, uh, it's like, it's cool to see the, like, it's interesting to see a, a, a filmmaker who would find his genre and then watch him like mishmashed into something else so early in his career while he's working out what that house style even is. Um, and you just don't see that uh, all that often. Um, yeah, it's, it's really neat. Like, I mean, he's, he doesn't have a house style really, even at this point. He's made one mm-hmm. movie, you know, and yeah. like, he's done some obviously he's done television work, but like. You can envision a work of like how he gets here of like, hey, I want to see if my uh, the kind of filmmaking I want to do can apply to something that is not something like Thief. You know, like I like I want to see like how far I can kind of stretch that out into other genres. And, you know, I, I the thing is, I don't think he would have been wrong to say like his kind of filmmaking could work on something like this. It just didn't here. There is maybe an alternate universe where, you know fucking Radu Molisar is DLC in Dead by Daylight. You know, like there is there is absolutely there's still time. There's, there's a world time. where that happens, but it just didn't happen here. It's a really cool design. And like a re- and as Dan, you pointed out, like a really like interesting mythology that would be totally in step with time to make one of these every year. You know, here's mm-hmm. the, the new keep movie. <laughs> oh, um, someone woke that motherfucker up again. <laughs> like, it's, it's so funny. Cause like the design for, for, for Molestar is just such a, like, you know, monster of the week, tokusatsu, like yes. design. And it's just like, but you know, but like, I guess like kind of really, really early, just kind of very pared down with, but it's just like, yeah, no, like this, this is, this is a monster that you can do so much with. And it also and feels they tried to do something with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's also it's also something like if you had told me that you could take uh, this version of the keep and you know we've d- talked like different versions of like a longer version that he that he shot and like a you know Dia proposed like an even like like shorter tone poem like you could also do like a more exploitative version of this that just ended up in Creep Show right like this right. also like right. has all of the elements of like what actually could have just been like a twenty five minute anthology piece in. In, in like the, the creep show stuff that like King and Romero were doing uh, in the 80s because it you could just it, it almost would have made more sense if you were just to take some of the more exploitative pieces of this toss a bunch of it out keep the synths uh, and then just heighten up the the gore and the, the the effect stuff and you would have ended up with probably something that would have been uh, more well received <laughs> than, than what actually ended up. Well, I'm surprised there aren't like a half dozen edits of the keep just floating around on YouTube by fans. <laughs> I mean, like, so it feels like something that like with but like i feel like something like, like now i'm like well maybe i could make a 20 minute cut dude i was this. sitting i was sitting there last <laughs> night being like you know i could just put this thing in premiere and right. like make that That's my exactly learning what I was project just thinking. radu molisar fan cam <laughs> <laughs> where i'm just like this is a german expressionist film with, with a tangerine dream soundtrack it has one scene one scene in this entire movie where the dialogue matters one right. scene and the why rest am I having deja vu for this? What? <laughs> I'm having just like the most intense moment of deja vu for you specifically deciding to make this into like German expressionist film. <laughs> well, so 
Well, the, the other part, though, and the, the weirdness really starts to set in here, too, where so the German soldiers in their greed unleash this wind monster as far as we can tell <laughs> this 5,000 year old motherfucker has been to... sleeping in here I mean, it's just an old the, fart yeah. the, way, the way it creeps up the movie is trying so hard to be like Ooh, and I'm like what are we like this is like this lingering shot of this fog is going on for like a solid two minutes what are we what are we doing here movie and I enjoy that but also if it, well, <laughs> and the thing is so I just watched Risky Business for the first time a couple months ago one of the most German expressionistic <laughs> films of all time yes <laughs> well Rob's working on his own cuts of a bunch of iconic films from the 80s uh, starting with Risky Business well so the, the thing is the scene where Rebecca De Mornay shows up and has sex with Tom Cruise and the scene where the evil is unleashed in the keep are the same scene. I need to be explicitly <laughs> clear about this. I cannot wait to see how we get here. There is something there's nowhere there's nowhere to go. Like we you like look up the scene. It's this also a Tangerine Dream soundtrack in um risky business it's the same thing of like when he uh hooks up with rebecca de when she arrives in his house oh a wind blows through the house and blows it all open and i'm like there's something in the air specifically in 1983 the year of my birth perhaps so we're Mm. really getting into some things here (laughs) are you saying there's something in the air tonight that, no, there's something. There's, what's <laughs> in, the air, something in the air? Dream, that night, my yeah. friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's just it's just so weird that in like 1983, there's a bunch of people who are like, you know, what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna un- I'm gonna show the raw power being unleashed in the scene through Tangerine Dream and a wind machine. That's that's the the scheme. But the thing they leave out in the keep is that usually in a horror movie. I would expect there would be a long sequence where people are mysteriously dying and people are like, Hey, where, where is Klaus? What happened to Klaus? What happened to Petter? Instead, we just cut. We've seen two German soldiers on guard. Just get like annihilated. Yeah. Just annihilated by the wind machine. Cut to a conversation that realized halfway through is days later. And a guy's just walking into uh urine Prochnow's office being like, uh, yeah, two more last night. Uh, our guys just keep getting killed and high command won't let us abandon this position. <laughs> and I'm like, we skipped over the part where the Germans are trapped in a keep that is slowly like devouring their army. And like, we just don't see any of that. We just skip to the part where it's like, it's the weirdest decision to not show Nazis getting murked in a movie about killing Nazis. It's so, and then. <laughs> Like, and it also po- highlights this. At no point do I really understand why are they there? Like, I had a, this entire time leading to this movie, I'm like, so this has got to be Raiders of the Lost Ark situation where, like, the Fuhrer wants the power of the ancient uh, fortress or something and what lies inside. And it's like, no, Jurgen Prochnow and his boys just seem pretty confused about why, why they're there. And they're just not allowed to leave. They might be there by accident. Yeah, I don't know if it's ever explicitly said in the film or if I've just sort of like drawn in the lines myself, but the vibe I got very much was that this was not a particularly important unit. I mean, this is taking place <laughs> during Operation, was it Barbosa? Barbosa, yeah. Barbosa, Barbosa. yeah, where they're, they are invading the Soviet Union slowly. And I think they said, maybe there's an offhand line somewhere where they say that like this, because they're in the Carpathian Mountains, uh, you know, the, the the place that they are in does not exist. It's It's made up for the film, but like, 
I I want to say there's a throwaway line where they say like they just want to hold this position because they want a foothold in the in this area, and because this keep is there, like that's an easy fortress for them to just occupy. But it's also possible they never actually say that, and I am just like drawing that into my brain because I need something there to make any of this make sense. It also would make a certain amount of sense with the Jurgen uh, the Jurgen Prochnow character because his whole thing is that. He is an extremely reluctant Nazi. Like he, he re- he's reading an anti-fascist book. He, they talk about it a little bit in the movie. Like he does not want to be there. He is not interested in anything related to Nazism. He has just been drafted into this war. He doesn't want to be there as a part of. And it seems like that unit is mostly just shitheads. So they probably just threw them out there. <laughs> it's it's such a strange thing because it's like this is the way the horror movie shit is supposed to be happening, and it just skips over it. Like, you can imagine uh, the scenes they probably filmed for that, that, like many other things, just got cut. But I kind of wonder, maybe Michael Mann just didn't film them. Like, that part of the story? Like, I kind of wonder. Like, there's, there's, there is part of me that's just like, it, this is almost a more Michael Mann movie if you cut out just, like, the weird, like, you know, spooky horror shit, and you just have Nazis disappearing. Right. And just, well, like, kind of keep having these shot. little, like, you know, commandos coming in and be like, you know, like, sir, no, two more done. And then just like close shot of a man's hands while he's like, you know, filling out another request to, for, you know, to, 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 to change position to the Nazi high command. That's just going to come back as like, you know, a rejection letter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can easily see Michael Mann being like, this would be a great fucking story without this goddamn ancient monster in the middle of it. <laughs> like the, <laughs> the Michael Mann version of this is just a story about like, you know, Nazi, like you just kind of like. You know, reluctant Nazis who are stuck out in a shithole outpost and trying to figure out what to do with themselves. Michael Mann's The Thing is just entirely about Arctic research. That's just <laughs> that's just what it is. Uh, and so with the permission to withdraw being denied, that leads us to uh, sort of the completion of the cast of characters here as the SS uh the initial cast of characters as the SS shows up and immediately does the SS thing, which is if Germans are mysteriously dying, it must be because of anti-fascist partisans and a very douchey looking Gabriel Byrne uh, immediately executes a bunch of villagers. He and Proc now get into it. Um, and they, as German troops continue dying, they find mysterious writing on the wall. Basically, the monster has left some rude uh, graffiti mm-hmm. uh, over the the burned out bodies of one of the Germans. And there's only one man who can translate this. And of course, it is the friendly local professor, uh, you know, scholar of the keep and uh, Romanian Jew, uh, Dr. Kuza, who has, of course, been carted off to a uh, detention area. Uh, being held for transport to a concentration camp. And so they, again, things that just get cut out. We get a brief shot of them sitting in the limbo of the detention ce- detention center, uh, chatting with a uh, Romani woman, uh, discussing what they hope is going to uh, happen to them, that they're going to be shipped off somewhere, deported somewhere uh, to start a new life. Um, obviously, McKellen's character, suspects that nothing good uh, awaits them at all here. But then we skip the part where he's actually summoned out of that. The next thing we see is he's just like in a, in the tunnel by the graffiti, 
uh, being explained that like, hey, actually, this is what is happening uh, to uh, Jews and Romani at this in this period. And that's what's going to happen to you unless you translate this message. And here is where we're supposed to be really freaked out. Um, well, initially, McKellen's character thinks this is actually a prank being pulled by his buddy, the village priest, uh, to bust him out of uh, Nazi uh, custody. And he is able to translate the message. And basically, it's Nazi fucks go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as he's talking to Robert Prosky's uh, father, uh, Fonescu, uh, he learns, he, he had assumed that this was his buddy's plot. And it turns out, no, that graffiti just appeared. And at that point, he realizes, okay, this is very weird because that language has been dead for 500 years. Um, Ooh. Yeah. Very scary. But we're not going to sit with that mystery long uh, because the movie's going to head fake us here with maybe the monster's good. Um, right. And I got to say, this is the best music cue in the movie. <laughs> also one of its tackiest moments. Uh, oh, definitely. It's so naturally uh, the professor has his daughter, Ava. She's harassed by the German troops and then is abducted and sexually assaulted uh by the ss troops and while that is happening smoke begins to fill the corridors we get the weird generator sounds banging from from every direction maybe not even coming from the generators the germans have have put up um and the germans have their souls like sucked right out of their faces um and we get our first glimpse at the monster as a truly, and I I think here we're going to have to insert a little cue. I think you need to hear the music they use for the sequence uh, because it is a really brilliant mix of, I think this is a Thomas Tallis composition uh, overlaid with a tangerine dream uh, like uh, synth line over it. And the monstrousness and the holiness of it is all caught up in the shot and i think the shot is like 90 percent genius as this music plays and this core and this thing rescues her and carries her down the corridor to her father it's 95 percent genius it's a roiling smoke monster i love it until we get to the glowing brain in the middle <laughs> of it <laughs> till it turns into a to a, to a character uh, to one of the the uh, creatures from mars attacks well, how um, else are we going to communicate to the audience that this is an entity that has form of some kind <laughs> that smoke is not its natural state the smoke looks amazing here's sure i here's well, the thing this monster design is the best version of Radu Molisar in the movie. Like, this is the most interesting creature design aspect of it because it at least is different. It's novel. Say what you will about the big, you know, fucking glowing galaxy brain he's got going on. Fine, whatever. But, like, it, it's, it, it's effective It's evocative. Enough. It's evocative, yes. It's effective right? enough, and it lets you know that, like, there is an entity somewhere swirling within this, what I think is actually a pretty neat use of, like, smoke effects for a monster design. So... 
let's take a moment and listen to some of the score uh, as this as this creature walks her down the corridor to her father, and we'll be back to talk briefly about this uh, Tangerine Dream uh, soundtrack as a whole, and then we will continue with uh, discussing what what Molasar wants. So, you know where I stand. Mm-hmm. Tangerine Dream. It's that good shit. You're pro. Yeah. A lot of people have felt fairly, like, in in context, like, Tangerine Dream was tended to be divisive on these, on these soundtracks. And here, like, Michael Mann repeatedly uses it to basically hold entire scenes together. Patrick, I am curious. Does it work or does it just turn into weird music videos in places? Oh, I, I think I think it's I think like it's it's like one of those things that fits of that of that era, especially of like the horror soundtracks. Like it's like absolutely like riffing in in the same direction. I found the <laughs> the weird designs of Molazar and the soundtrack were like the reasons to watch <laughs> this movie. Like this movie in particular, I think the soundtrack does a lot of the heavy lifting to like keep you in <laughs> certain scenes where almost nothing else is actually working um at least in, the, in probably to the height of the degree that man was hoping for i think it it absolutely works for for me and what i look for when i'm pulling a, a movie like this off the shelf um but i think I, this film like almost doesn't function without the soundtrack um uh i get like the stitching it's doing here like to to have the the film be evocative and, and interesting um i think it's like one of the core core mechanics of yeah. like how this movie even fits yeah, we've moved away at this point, uh, by you know, from uh, like Jerry Goldsmith Alien score. You know, we're not it's which which would probably, in some regards, if we were going to make this movie, you know, either a couple years earlier or you know later, we would end up with a kind of Jerry Goldsmith kind of you know creeping dread, low hums, just lots of just eerie like strings, um, you know, and they're like you know Jaws with with the kind of the classic. Um, God, I just completely forgot his name. The composer. John Williams? John Williams. Uh, the John Williams, you know, score. We, we are not doing that in the 80s. In the 80s, we are doing, like, the weird John Carpenter sense. Well, that's what that's what this is, right? Like, we're, we're, that's, Car- Car- like Carpenter's music is a character, right? Like, that right, is, yeah. it is not, it's not just, like, a series of themes that, uh, or, or is, like, you know, strings deployed to evoke an emotion. It is not it's tone, like, yeah. Right, right. Like, like, the whole reason the shape is like works in Halloween is because like after that soundtrack, that film 
is a couple of interesting shots, but like probably doesn't work. Um, like that's also like the keep is playing in that same space of like, Hey, the music isn't just here to like heighten your emotions. Like it's a, it's a character facet of like the entire thing. Um, and like, that's if, 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 the, if we look at this is a like in keeping with in, in keeping, uh, like mm. in, you know, in, in spirit of, of like sort of like a John Carpenter film, like th- that's where like this like functions with the Tangerine Dream soundtrack is because like, it exists to be like part and parcel with like why you're watching the film, not just to sort of heighten your reaction to a specific scene in particular. And the thing that's kind of fascinating about this one though, is that like in, in thief, the soundtrack is definitely, you know, very much part of the DNA of the film. Like it definitely heightens certain moments, but there is a stoicism to that film in general, you know, like this, this, the, 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 hard scrabble nature of the character, the work he's doing, everything that's happening there. So like the soundtrack never really overtakes the actual character drama in that film here. The soundtrack is so present. And some of that is just the sound mix too, but like the way it just sort of occupies like so much space within the film, it feels like it's adding an element of melodrama that like Michael Mann just himself is not particularly capable of adding to films because he is not a melodramatic person. There are scenes of melodrama in his stuff. Like there are things that come across as melodrama, like some of the stuff at the end of heat with, with Pacino and De Niro can kind of be that way, but it's all like he, he wants everything to have a certain kind of like stoic quality to it. But here it's like, he's in, he's, he, he's, working on a story that just isn't built that way. Like, yes, Scott Glenn, which we'll get to, uh, is, you know, like his whole character is very much like single-minded, one job, got to do it. But everything else around it is just like so borderline grindhouse and trashy and kind of just like, you know, exploitative. Like that soundtrack has to do a lot of the work because I don't think Michael Mann quite knows how to make actors exist in that space the way they maybe need to like some of those actors are doing that work like Gabriel Byrne very much is I think Ian McKellen at moments is certainly there but there's also a lot of actors in this movie who feel like they don't quite know where they're supposed to be or what they're supposed to be hitting and I feel like the soundtrack sometimes is just like trying to lift some of that up that's a great point you know when I think about and and probably this is necessary to bridging some of uh man's shortcomings as a director of dramatic actors uh like he eventually i think does get there i think a lot of his his uh like mid-career films often like are built around a core of, of really terrific performances yeah uh, albeit fairly stoic nuanced ones but he learns how to draw out that nuance uh but if i think about like People remember this stuff in like Miami Vice, but if you think about like the in the air tonight montage, mm-hmm. it is stoic men driving a gleaming sports car around uh, Miami. And we're supposed to feel the heaviness of that moment. And the only reason we do is because Phil Collins is basically telling you how to feel in this moment. Yeah. And at this point in his career, man needs that. He needs um, music to help that stuff along. The funny thing, though, is it also feels like Tangerine Dream, for some reason, has a way better handle on the tone of the entire story. Like, there's a few different Tangerine Dream soundtracks out there. This one, to my ears, sounds distinctive. Uh, Obviously, in this piece you just listened to, they are specifically, like, weaving in, uh, like, like, classic devotional choral music into, uh, Mm -hmm. into their work. And 
in a lot of ways, that is this film, right? This the sense of old old Europe, uh, antiquity, combined with the heightened modern uh, aesthetics and like raw power and ambient, like and 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 ambience. Um, and I think like they are pretty much nailing the assignment in a way that man, I don't think I think because he's kind of uncommitted about what he's doing here. He is missing the mark in a lot of places. Like Dio, when you allude to Jerry Goldsmith on um, Alien, that reminded me watching this. I feel like Alien is another huge influence on the story. Where he also, I think, clearly has real envy for the idea of just like we're just going to hold on characters moving into a weird, creepy space. It's so funny because, like you know, like last time we talked about man's kind of fixation on the working man. And like, you know, and so Alien really does feel like the movie that man wanted to make. I mean, that is movie basically about laborers being exploited by, you know, uh, a corporation in like, you know, the chaos of life. This could have been that movie. Man doesn't know how to make that as a horror movie, I don't think. And maybe, maybe, maybe it was, maybe it was the source material. This source material is very clearly working off of that kind of epic mythos, like kind of creating, uh, sort of material. It's not a very self-contained, you know, like one of the things I always talk about alien is alien is a submarine story. You know, alien is dust boot. Um, uh, whereas like this is clearly an expansive, you know, kind of his, you know, horror fantasy kind of approach. It is going to go on to become, you know, a kind of a, an alt, a sideline to the Dark Tower, a sideline to you know, Lord of the Rings or H.P. Lovecraft. Um, uh, but like, as a contained unit, I don't think man can handle it. It gets away from him entirely. And like, you know, you have the actors, you have um, a oh god, um, the cinematographer for this was um, uh. Alex Thompson, who like, you know, was nominated for an Academy Award for Excalibur. And like he and he does he goes on to do Legend and Labyrinth and like uh, all these you know movies that are like not. Yeah, yeah, he does Labyrinth. Yeah. Um, and Alien 3 even like he goes on to like to be this big deal. He already was a big deal cinematographer who knows how to film these kinds of things. Man just doesn't know how to hold the pieces together. Yeah. And just as a quick aside, it's funny you mentioned Das Boot. I, a thing I forgot to mention at the top also is that this is also Jürgen Prochnow's first big Hollywood movie, mostly off the strength of his appearance in Das Boot. And yeah. playing basically the same character. Very a similar, reluctant yeah. German warrior uh, who's realized the rottenness at the heart of it all. Um, so we learn real fast there that, hey, maybe this monster's friendly. Uh, the monster seems pissed. It's like, are you, you, Ian McKellen, are you working with these fucking Nazis? And he's like, no, not me. I hate the Nazis. And the monster's <laughs> like, cool, then we're bros. And like swats him across the face, blasts that age makeup straight off him. Mm-hmm. And like, bam, it's young Magneto. Uh, Except a little, maybe too waxy now. I don't know. There's some makeup weirdness will, going on with him. You're not wrong, but I will say seeing young Ian McKellen uh, in the 35 millimeter print clarity uh, actually made the age makeup in X-Men 3 seem worse. Like the the CG, <laughs> DCGing of, of Ian McKellen in that movie, uh, it really is striking. It's like, oh, they fucked that up. <laughs> uh, so 
It's at this point, I think we got to talk about Scott Glenn. He was, we saw him. <laughs> oh my God. Waking funny. up when the Germans unsealed the tomb. And then he's just been reverse great escaping across Europe, uh, driving toward the keep. Um, and again, some great shots, like a shot of him being stopped at a guard checkpoint in a creepy forest, like just magical shots in, in, in some ways. Uh, but he's here now. There's Scott Glenn. Uh, this this is the part of the movie that every time I watch it, I feel like I'm ready for it, and I never am. Like, it just everything involving Scott Glenn's character. One, it's a mixture of, I can't believe they used some of the shots they did and then cut out others. Like, that shot of him getting on the boat in Greece and just sailing off is like a minute and a half of just a boat <laughs> sailing into a sunrise. Well, it's, it's beautiful, but, but my it's God... Also- <laughs> it's a Michael Mann shot. When you think yeah. about the, in, the 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 very introduction in Greece of him getting out of bed yes. and getting his shit together and then walking to the boat and getting on the boat and the boat's not. That is like one of the most Michael Mann moments in this movie. It's what he knows how to do really well at this point. Just like the intro with the Nazis coming in and close ups on like, you know, Jürgen Prochnow's face and then the village from through the windshield and then cut to the treads of the tank and then cut to the wide shot of the gun and then back to Jurgen Prochnow's close up of his hands and like you know that's 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 the the intro you know um safe cracking from thief totally and it's like, it's like they're great shots like the mm-hmm. thing is like if in an, in another movie where they don't have to excise the exposition that explains why the person this person <laughs> exists they are beautiful they are perfect they're additive to the experience 100% but here and I'm not saying this about Scott Glenn's performance, which is just Scott Glenn saying things for the most part, like and then wearing some really weird fucking rubbery neck shit. But the way his character appears in this movie has all the care of a drunken driver, like careening into a fucking like side embankment. Like he just shows up and crashes into every part of the movie that he's in. <laughs> like suddenly it's just like, nope, here's these shots of him going across, you know, the landscapes of Europe. Whoops, he's in the town. Whoops, they're fucking. It's just like, it's just out of nowhere every single thing that happens. It's the the part where, so uh, Prochnow arranges to have Ava, not Magda in the story. Magda's a little too Romanian. Yeah. Ava, just good, neutral, European uh, woman. Uh, we we get her out of the keep. Jurgen Prochnow's like, this is this is too dangerous. It's getting fucked up in here. She's sent to the inn in the village. Bam. There's Scott Glenn. And he's like, oh, I'll be sharing this room with you. And she's like, I don't know how I feel about this. And then just the magnetism of Scott Glenn again, soundtrack kicks on. She sees her own reflection in the mirror, but I guess not his, and that's supposed to be important, but the film doesn't call attention to it. And then we see like her being like, so you seeing anyone or something to that effect? And then 80s sex scene where everyone just touches each other a lot. Um, and and it goes then, on for minutes, like minutes it's of really weird, long weird sex. I'll say it again. Like, I, I know this happens in the book, too, but it is imperative to Michael Mann that you know that this character fucks. It's not just that he fucks. The audience has to know that he fucks. It's important. It is one of the only character details you actually get <laughs> in this movie. And you need to know that he fucks weird. 
that he makes but, weird Christ poses while he's fucking. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Like, does he even, you know, it fucks almost feels like too active. It's like fucking happens around him. Yes. It is just like he's channeling the concept the, of the Scott Glenn sex. is the concept of fucking. It's weird. <laughs> like they have like they have sex and their hips are immediately paralyzed, but every other part of them just has to like That's the cosmic str- horror. <laughs> it's yeah, they're doing like, they're doing the the make contact gesture from Bloodborne. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the little touching. It's like must touch arms. Uh anyway, <laughs> And then from this, they're in love. This is, you don't know this, but later in the film, when she realizes, like, Scott Glenn's just going to, like, pack up and leave to go seal up this ancient evil? What about us? She she has the classic, like, this is the role of women in most Michael Mann films, which is, why are you leaving me like this? Can't you see I love you? And the Michael Mann protagonist is like, I love the work more. And then fucks off out of out of her life um that's gonna happen here too but it's just gonna be like we're gonna be told that we won't see it because no building of this relationship it's just like she meets this guy and she's like well i'm in love and we're gonna be married now there were apparently whole scenes shot that were about them going into the keep like sort of incur like incursions into the keep to see what's going on there for him like staking out what's going on with molasar there's all this stuff that was built around them sort of developing this relationship and all that shit is just gone. Like there is nothing there to establish anything as to why these characters would even give a shit about each other. And yeah. it is so jarring. Like there's a lot of jarring stuff in this movie, but like the literal snap to of them fucking is genuinely one of the most jarring things I've ever seen in a movie. But the jarring stuff doesn't stop there. No. Because the next thing is, remember that kindly priest we talked to, Robert Prosky? <laughs> yes. Time for him to have a heel turn that's really fucking weird. Uh, because he shows up, and it turns out he's just been seething about secular humanism. He's just, he is heated. <laughs> he has joined Opus Dei, and he is ready to just unload on his academic buddy. Uh, and then he's going to eat his, he's going to eat his dog. <laughs> There's there's some steps in there. I've that, that I think, scene like three times. I was like, what? 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 What is this two second shot that we're getting? So there's two things happening here. One, I think there was supposed to be more plot that establishes that him and Ian McKellen had some sort of like philosophical debate going on. Like McKellen's character is supposed to be, if not atheist, then at least more God questioning, I think. But they never really get into it. And it's just all you know is that they are friends, but they are also maybe like kind of friendly arguing buddies. There's supposed to be, I think, a whole thing there where the priest sees this and gets mad and like sees McKellen working with them, doing more stuff, getting well out of all of this and realizing something really bad is happening there. But we don't get any of that. And then there's this whole other sequence that's supposed to be there where the Molisar's energy is supposed to be infecting the people of the village. It's supposed to be turning them or driving them to madness. The the kindly. Well, let's not call him kindly. Let's say the uh, the the gravelly keeper of the keep is supposed to die in this sequence. Like he actually is supposed to get another scene. His sons who are barely in the background are supposed to be killing him, but we don't get any of that. That dude shows up for one scene and then is just gone. We never hear from him again. There's supposed to be all this stuff that's supposed to be like this big old bloodbath in the village of people just going crazy, which is where the Robert Prosky moment is supposed to be a part of that. But that's all we see. And that is just so confusing on its face. And it's so short. It feels like someone like filmed that by accident and they were just like, 
Let's use that. <laughs> this, yeah, the what? second unit was just like, yeah, all right, we got a day. Like, you know, I, man's got nothing for us to do today. It's raining on that set. Like, let's just go film this weird one-off thing. And then the studio got it was like, cram it in. Like, well, this looks great. But it's so weird that like, so like that's crammed in, but all of the Nazis dying isn't. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, we'll- that might also be, uh, I feel like, like you also can't separate like, Yes, there's all the studio meddling, but you also can't separate like the lack of um, the guy dying to do all the effects shots. So like I, yeah. they shot all that stuff, you know, man oversaw some of it in order to get, you know, to, to, to where we are. And the studio, you know, signed off on some amount of it. But it's also the case like there are probably like huge swaths of like that sort of if it's not necessarily plot, it's at least like world building for in like tone setting for what's going on here. And it's just gone or there's just like raw blue or green screen stuff of it that was just never, ever completed so the and i think this is also like it's easy to think about like roles on films being fundamentally fungible but there's actually a lot of specialty like type of work that people like this like different people would do this job in a different way but once you committed to this person seeing the project through like (laughs) it's not like there's somebody who's just gonna plug in and be like yeah i know that shot's gonna work like that guy passing yeah. away during the making of this film, everyone just like, I don't know how he planned on assembling all this. And like the entire concept of how it's going to come together died with him. And so I guess we just can't do it. Maybe if the studio had thrown, I'm sure you throw enough money at it. Somebody oh, yeah. would have come in there and be like, fuck it. We'll do some reshoots. And here's how I go. <laughs> yeah, about but they it. hated the movie. <laughs> like, yeah. like, been, like his release was buried. Um, I, you know, so, I mean, it, it sounds like it was just a confluence of a director being done and over it, a studio yeah. not liking the project almost from its inception. And then you have this catastrophic, uh, you know, a moment of, of someone dying to just sort of add like another layer of shit to what was already <laughs> a pretty problematic enterprise. Yeah. So this notion of uh, Molossar's evil being unleashed and, and working this change. Yeah, it's not clear. Like, obviously, something bad's going on when the border collie gets, uh, like, consumed by the priest. That's not good. Um, <laughs> but we don't really see the enunciation of what's going on until Prochnow tells us in a climactic confrontation with um, the SS officer, uh, Kampfer. Sorry, before this, the lovers are on a walk. They're going into the keep and Scott Glenn's like, I got to deal with this keep situation. And then the Nazis gun him down. He appears mm-hmm. to be dead. It's very sad. Camphor and, uh, Prochnow's character. Uh, gosh, I can't, uh, uh, Worman. Uh, he, they have an argument that's basically anti-fascist German versus Nazi. Um, and I think this is like, you can feel, I, I think you feel man's hand on this one more. It's sort of a argument or in an, a delivery of worldview. One of the things that Prochnow is saying is like all the darkness that's in the people of the village and the people who come to the keep, all of it is now being brought to the surface and amplified by the influence of the keep. And that's that's when you realize, like, oh, yeah, that probably is what's happening, right? Like, that's that's right. what's going on. Yeah. But the other part of this, um, and I think we'll stop and we'll listen to sort of the, the, the key exchange here, is, like, Prochnow delivering a message about, like, what lies at the heart of fascism and the fascist response, which is, 
and here is what's hollow at the heart of your liberalism. Uh, and that is what this this argument is unpacking. We'll stop and listen to it for a second and uh, then dive back in. I will not! Your will! Nothing. Your will die. All of us will die. You're falling apart, family. You despise our ruthlessness. But you do not grab history by the throat and write the next 1,000-year future without brutality and courage! Fairy tales, Kintha. Romantic fairy tales. You tell yourself. Then dress up in black and silver so you can look in the mirror and maybe believe them. I'm full, I'm right, I'm viewer! Poznan, a year and a half ago, SS Einsatzkommando executed men, women, and children. Children, for God's sake. Ruthlessness, courage. How many times have I escaped? Have you met your Don't you talk to me about courage. Were you with the German anti-fascists fighting us in Spain? No. Did you stop the Einsatz Commander Poznan? No. You have the debilitating German disease, Vermin. Sentimental talk. It allows you to feel sensitive, superior, and yet stay safe because you take no action. Your sentimental suffering makes me sick. For once, you're right, Kempfer. I'm only half a man. All that we are is coming out. Here in this keep. <laughs> the man sees the truth. And what truth do you see? What are you discovering about yourself, Kemper? Huh? I murder all these people. Therefore, I must be powerful. And you smash them down because only that raises you up. It's a psychotic fantasy to escape the weakness and disease you sense in the core of your souls. You have scooped the most diseased psychos out of the German gutter. You have released the foulness that dwells in all men's minds. You have infected millions with your twisted fantasies. And from the millions of diseased mentalities that worship your twisted cross. What monstrosity has been released in this game? Who are you meeting, Kenver? And the granite corridors of this game. So in my cut of this film, which is all silent except for the music score, I think this is the only one you actually need the dialogue really for. Because uh, I think if I, in my in my gut, I feel like this is basically the scene that man like is is animated by in this film. Um, it's just not a scene that really even belongs in the film he's made. In some well, that's, like, yeah, that's that, that, that's yeah. the funniest part about it is like, oh, this isn't the story. You're t- this is a creature feature, dude. Like this is like a a long buried secret, and then some Nazis find it, and then it kills everyone, and then slapped into this film is like a long substantive exchange of philosophy, like the longest sort of like attempt for any characters to share any sort of insight, nuance, perspective. Um, Cause that's not, that's not what these movies are, uh, you know, f- f- by and large. And so for it to be here, I don't know that it detracts from the film, but it certainly like kind of stops you in your tracks. And it's like, wh- where, where, 
uh, did this come from? And I, 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 you know, maybe that exists in the longer cut, but I don't think so. I, my guess is this scene still feels odd in whatever longer version of this movie like hypothetically exists. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. Well, that's like one of the things I think about, like with this book, like being made at this time into a movie. I don't think it fits in with 1980s horror. I think if anything, like this adapting adapting the keep or you know any of the the like adversary cycle books at this time doesn't work because of what we are expecting from these kinds of movies. Um, you, 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 we, we have not yet had the Lord of the Rings happen. Right. But if you imagine also, like a different, Oh, go ahead, Rob. Well, but I also think this is sometimes, I suspect this might actually be sort of a crypto theme in a lot of man's work, which is, I think underlying a lot of man's work is a really critical caustic look at like modern liberal society. Mm -hmm. And the problem is the movies he gets greenlit are largely action films. So like when he wants to make a movie about civil rights era upheaval, that is going to be through the lens of a Muhammad Ali biopic. Um, The story, like at the start of um, uh, the insider, the story that Al Pacino's character doesn't get to tell is about like the corruption and institutional brutality of the RCMP against uh, First Nations people in Canada. And that is lurking in the background of that film. And I think to an extent, that's also sort of man's perspective is there are these things in the world that I want to talk about and they're not entertaining. They're not sexy. So people don't let you like talk about them and package them in that way. But they are the themes that I want to draw out. But also my man's tragedy is that for the most part, he's also good at making really sexy, action-packed character pieces. And when those things align, like in uh, like in Last of the Mohicans, like magic can happen. But for the most part, these two things end up operating along different tracks. And I think the scene kind of typifies it where he's he wants to have the scene where basically like what is the value of your internal moral resistance to a brutal military society if it doesn't fucking change anything? If you're just going to talk about it and complain about it, but meanwhile, the fascists are the ones in charge and you stand by and feel bad about it. And like, and that lets you feel like you're apart from it. Man wants to put that, that in this film, but it doesn't really go here because yeah, creature feature. Molasar is out there, man. Like he's sucking <laughs> souls out of eyeballs. Creature His feature. eyes are real red at this point. Yeah, it, it's a creature feature. And I, I, I do think there is probably something in there that maybe is a little bit more uh, fleshed out as far as the tension between Proc now and Burn in this movie. But the thing that's kind of mystifying to me is that this scene survived intact past even the Paramount cut of this. Like, this feels like the thing you truncate down to about 30 seconds of Jurgen Proc now yelling and then getting shot. If I'm the studio, just like trying yeah, to that's get a, this that's thing a good point because it's just, it's just a plot device to get to like the final arc of the film, as opposed to yeah, uh, like, like you could wh- why why do we care about this film? Something we're selling this to trying to sell this movie to teenagers who are going to see a schlocky movie on Friday night. Like they they don't want to hear this. Like like they don't care. Like you could have taken two minutes of this and then added in two minutes of Scott Glenn and uh the Ava character like meeting each other talking to each other doing literally anything to each other but no this whole scene isn't and it's not a bad scene like they they right, act right, it right. well like the dialogue is actually pretty good it just like you said it just feels like 
like many things in this movie, it just careens into the movie out of nowhere. Speaking of which, mm. right as that scene is reaching its climax, the, the argument between the two German officers is reaching its peak. Molisar is back and he's mad. Uh, <laughs> the tagline for the sequel that never got made. <laughs> and so here we get to one of the big action sequences in the movie. Automatic weapons fire happening outside off screen. You're in Prague now being shot in the back by Gabriel Byrne. And then Gabriel Byrne coming out to discover the entire German military presence in the village has been wiped out uh, by Molisar. And I will say, the set design here is actually oh. pretty good. Oh, I it's, loved- it's very cool. And it's also very uh, alien. Like, it actually mm-hmm. has, like, a strong... Like Scott vibes um, of like it being very much the, feels um, like you're in that uh, the the spaceship where they find the eggs. Like it yes, has that totally. kind of like big cavernous quality, but there is just like all this fucked up shit everywhere. A good use of fog again. Like the fo- fog use in this film is is excellent. And like that sequence in particular has a, like a really good atmosphere. And I would love to see the scene where all that shit was transformed, where like that Puma recon vehicle gets just like ripped to shit <laughs> by Molisar and when those Germans like sucked into the walls of the keep, that would oh. have been a hell of a scene. Really wish for many reasons, of course, that man had not passed away. We didn't get that scene. And so we get like a, a, a pretty good showcase actually of like how set design and decoration can actually do a lot of narrative lifting. Like as much as I feel like there should be an action climax happening here, I am not sure it would have increased the impact of just seeing Gabriel Byrne walk out and be like, oh, like the devil is real and he walks among us. Oh, the scream he lets out is so good. Like the scream that Byrne just sort of like yelps when he senses what's happening here. Like it's just it's a good moment of like, here is this guy who is so dedicated to being the meanest, shittiest person in any room he's in. And as soon as he sees that, like, all the stuff he uses to, like, back him and back his power and make him seem more intimidating is just gone, he just crumbles. And here we get to the last thing, which is this point in the film, I'm still not sure Molisar's bad because I'm not sold on the, like, <laughs> we, we, we're supposed to know that he's doing this to the villagers and causing them to become their worst selves. But so far, we've heard Molisar be like, the Nazis are doing what? I'm not cool with that. He's also Here. very obsessed with this trinket. Yeah, like that's the that's the other subplot we haven't really like touched on to this point. Where like I gotta, buddy, you got you really gotta go get this trinket. You gotta you gotta go find it. If you want to stop this Hitler fella, here. you yeah, gotta be, get my trinket and unleash it on the world. I mean, set me free so I can help. <laughs> just just uh, take it out of the keep. Just take it out. I can't do it. Like like legally, I can't. But if you could just grab it and you could just take it out, like you would be doing me a huge solid. I've made you very spry and young. Like, you've got those young legs. Like, just go use them. Go find that trinket. So, uh, McKellen does go searching for that trinket to set him free. But Ava's like, Dad, you can't take that that trinket out of the keep. Uh, And he's like, no, I feel pretty good about taking the trinket (laughs) out of the keep. And she's like, my boyfriend, who you haven't met. Is like super serious about like him not being like the trinket not leaving the keep. Now the Nazis machine gun. It's him. actually his. Like it's. It, I think he's got the bill of sale for it. Like he says it's his. Like there's a whole bunch of drama. I don't even know about it. But like Molisar says it's his. But like I'm telling you, Gleekin like like says that's not true. Like don't trust Molisar. And Molisar screws the pooch here 
by being like, God damn it, just shut that bitch up. Like, that's basically his response. Mm-hmm. He tries to kill the daughter. At that point, McKellen's like, well, this isn't good. Like, that's 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 bad. You know, you know what that is? That's just like that Nazi shit we've been dealing with. And so the scales fall from his eyes and uh, Molisar Revan going back into sales pitch mode continues to double down on being an asshole. And McKellen sort of delivers the speech, uh, you know, realizing now that uh, the type of evil that Molisar represents is not that dissimilar from the type stalking the world uh, at large. And as Molsar is losing his temper and just fixing to kill them all, Scott Glenn shows up with a length of metal conduit tubing. <laughs> well, before we get before we get to that, but I do want to give a shout out to McKellen's wild theatrical over overacting on the repeated uh, line of like "take it yourself." Like mm-hmm. as he kept saying that, like I was getting up out of my chair, and then McKellen would say it again and overact a little more, and then I would get out of my chair. I was like, I was like, I was like cheering, like say the line again, <laughs> say the line again. Um, is delightful. Like he, like it's it's one of the few moments in the film where you know we, we spoke about how the it doesn't seem like man was giving particularly good direction to like what kind of movie am I in? Am I overacting to be in a creature feature? Like to you know go have some fun with the audience? And like that's one of those moments where I felt like whether McKellen is doing that on purpose or it's an ax, happy accident like he's in the movie that I think this movie would should be to be operating and being its best self with well, the footage we have access to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's it's great. Like he's a he's a, it's just some trem- like uh, the it's when you see uh, a really good actor overacting on purpose, like both with restraint and un- it's just a beautiful little moment. And I, I, I delighted in it. You, well, you like can, we, we know he knows that he knows exactly what he's doing at this moment because right. it is just, it, it will become recapitulated in the confrontation with Balrog in Lord of the yep. Rings. That's what like, I was going to say. You can draw a straight line. It's a straight line. Yeah. The Balrog. Perfect. Yes. Cause, cause and, that, and that's actually like, yeah, the, the, you shall not pass is like very much like take the trinket. Oh, that's yes. The, someone got, listen to this episode, mash those two together for me, please. And send, send me that comparison shot. I need, I need it in my life. If this is yours, as you said, then you take it out of it. I am a servant of the secret fire. Wielder of the flame of Arnor. The dark fire will not avail you. Flame of Udun! You can't? Then this isn't yours. And the keep is a prison to contain you. And you have lied, exploited, deceived. And you are the same evil as outside this place. So you... Yourself to me. Go back to the shadow. You take it out of here. Do yourself. Take it. You shall not
do love the taunting quality McKellen adopts here too, where like to sort of fully unmask this guy, it's be like, hey, you say a trinket's yours. Okay, fine. Pick it up. Pick it up and walk it out of here. Yeah, Come on, show motherfucker, me. What are you doing? Oh, look, you can't. You can't, can you? <laughs> Looks like Gleekin was right. Uh, but, and I, th- I think there's also sort of presages like why eventually in Hollywood, like the British factory system of producing stage trained actors for the screen will like demolish a lot of the more naturalistic American style because like the direction things are going is you're going to need a lot of actors who are trained in just like committing to the work despite the fact that there is nothing there to really hold on to in the scene except your own belief um and mckellen is is putting in that work the the picture might be falling apart around him uh this whole thing might not be coming together it's not a very convincing moment uh but he's going to play to the back seats uh Mm -hmm. you know as it were and that's when scott glenn's going to show up with one of the worst props i've ever seen it's so funny because in the book it's a fucking magic sword yeah what and like, yeah, it's it's so funny because like, okay, so th- when I think about this movie and like the the transition from the magic sword to like the 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 bar, the the the, the weird like pedestal lamp shaft, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> like, you know, I swear I to think, God, it's just a torchier he bought at like Home like, Depot. It is. Or it's it's just like yeah, I had it's the target lamp we all had in college. You know, like it's, um, but like I think about like David Lynch talking about why the changes he made in Dune for like the weirding way, which is basically like the Matrix Kung Fu. Like it's mm-hmm. just like they move too fast and like you can't see what they're doing. And like David Lynch is like, it's going to look dumb having people do Kung Fu on Dunes. We're not, we're not doing that. And so he makes the decision to change it to, sound guns which is still just kind of like this is still stupid but just a different kind of stupid and so i could see like you know i could see michael mann being like a magic sword is stupid i'm not putting a magic sword in my fucking movie this is about (laughs) real men doing real men shit against nazis um and so he just gets like like he just he just gets, gets gets magic rebar yep Magic rebar that needs the trinket to be put on top. It needs the light bulb before it will work. And then he's gone to the uh, Emperor Palpatine school of unleashing all your power. He just blasts a big load at Molisar. Yes, he sure does. Until Molisar is banished. There's no no one-liners. There's no, like, this would have been the moment if you were going to take a bunch of the backstory that Dia has like outlined for us, like give uh, three or four lines. that explains like the history of like these two characters after 500 years, I'd have something to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just, uh, he's like, I it's, uh, essentially like, like Molestar's like eyes, like cartoonishly bulge. And he goes, Oh no, he's here with that stick. It's Damn just like, it. you can literally hear him saying, Oh, <laughs> right before it happens. <laughs> but like Patrick is right. Like this is the moment where you have like, you know, even if like you have to do it, like, you know, you haven't done it up to this point. You you have like, you know, most of the be like, I'm actually wrestling. He's like, he's like, it's been, you know, 500 years since we last met wizard and I will destroy you this time. Like, that's all you need. You just, that's think, some you fun world. All of right a sudden there. you go, Oh shit. Like that adds a bunch of layers of context 
that was not in this movie and it should have been, but at least like, especially as a kid would be like, Oh my, they're wizards. Holy <laughs> shit. That rules. And then blast away. Uh, Scott Glenn, like <laughs> do, you know, cause like that didn't uh, even make sense. It's Scott Glenn. It's like, okay, you are like a mystical ninja man. Okay, cool. Like how can, you're fighting how wizards. can Scott Glenn look so much like David Carradine and possess no David Carradine mystical like charisma. I, you know, look, like some David Carradine, I would be like, yes, aren't. inherently, of course he's magical. Of course. Yes. But I Scott Glenn, I'm like, that man doesn't know any magic PVC pipe. That man has <laughs> never even believed in the, the power of his keyblade. He blade. believes in PVC pipe, but just for home, like home <laughs> renovation projects, nothing else. So there's like, two. It's so there's, funny because like he does not like he does not commit to this being like you know him holding a magical relic or anything like that. I don't think he knows how. No, like, I just don't think he's that kind of actor. Uh, well, I guess actually, like, there's an extended scene where he's going around the keep being like. Well, these are supposed to be silver, first of all. Contractor. Contractor. Yeah. Clearly skimmed here. Are you kidding me? Uh, so but I guess this two- is the case where th- that, that Alex, you mentioned before, that the like ending sequence that he pitched and the studio said, Abs- Abs- absolutely not. You'll, you will have none of that. Your big climactic. I think it was like a battle that was to take place on the roof of yeah. like, the keep. Maybe that's where, like, where we're like, why isn't there... Where's the one-liners, guys? Like all this, like buildup. I guess it was there. It was not shot here, and so it just doesn't exist in the film. Period. Yeah, that that was one of the two things I wanted to hit here. One, yes, there was must be a much more extended ending. There was much more of a battle between uh, Glaken and and Molisar. It would go through the entirety of the keep as it is crumbling. They would make their way to the roof, and then they would both be sucked into a you know the same portal that they get sucked into at the end of the movie. But then they keep fighting through the void of time and space until oh, like shit. Yeah, like some real fucking shit. And like it, it I think there are some like pre-production sh- stills from that fight where it is literally just Scott Glenn like suspended in air and the other guy is kind of suspended <laughs> in air but like there's no effects around it yet. So if you look for it you could find those shots. Uh, this, this ending is one of the reasons I think like man does not want to revisit this thing at all. Like he's, he hate, he, this is a severely compromised ending from what he wanted to do. And I just don't think he thinks there's enough material to do the thing he wants to do. The other thing I just wanted to briefly touch on is that we have super glossed over the fact what they do to Scott Glenn once he becomes super powered. Like once he goes Super Saiyan or Super Glaken, whatever the fuck, <laughs> they just add neck muscles. That's it. His eyes start glowing and suddenly he's got like Cowboy's linebacker neck out of nowhere. <laughs> and it's just like this weird rubbery extension off his neck that is meant to signify he's real strong now. And that's it. That's well, the whole because- thing. It's because this, that's the same design that's, you know, like if you look at like, you know, Rassalam, like he's got the big neck thing too. Yes. And so it's clearly that's just what people from the first age of man looked like. Yeah, they all kind of looked like apocalypse, <laughs> but like real rubbery apocalypse. Oh, man, it's a shame that the SS Sturmbahnfuhrer didn't get a chance to see that. Just imagine how excited he would have been to see a I real, know. real live Ubermensch. <laughs> Two of them even, Ubermenschen. <laughs> Um, they're underwhelming. There was a smoke man, which was way cooler. Smoke man should have just been the monster design. I think the muscle suit predator design they go with isn't great. I think the big like beam of light coming out of Scott Glenn, not great. 
Um, Doesn't and really then, do yeah. much of anything. Well, Michael Mann got really, he really was hype about like, you know, the magnesium torch from Thief mm-hmm. <laughs> and how it looked on film. And he had to bring it back. He was just they like, should what have used that. <laughs> like, they really should have. Instead of, instead of rotoscoping, like, battle. <laughs> like, also, maybe just cast James Kahn again. Like, imagine James Kahn bringing that energy. Uh, from Thief straight into the keep. Ooh. Now, admittedly, it sounds like one reason James Conn didn't come around again is because maybe he didn't like he. It sounds like he could be difficult to work with in places. Um, and I can only imagine how he would have felt about this shoot. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, the way this thing is going to go is um, so Molisar is blasted into the keep, and then uh oh, Scott Glenn is sucked in after him the synths are pounding again uh the arcane powers are unleashed once more ava stands there and watches scott glenn try to swim out of the keep he can escape no he can't he's pulled pulled down behind the key the keystone and the evil is sealed in the villagers emerge and she is left weeping uh over her father uh who has become old again and uh, frail again. She's left weeping uh, alone with him on the bridge. As the music comes up, the villagers emerge and the credits roll. Very sad, but very like quintessentially man ending in some ways, which is a guy has a job to do. He lets nothing get in his way. And without a second, without a backwards glance in some ways, commits to it and leaves a woman behind uh, to like mourn the loss of this impressive man that briefly passed through her life. But there's another way this could have and arguably should have gone. And Alex, you shared that with us uh, in the TV cut. Yeah. So before I get into that, I would just like to briefly say that this is also like maybe the most Godfrey Ho ending of any Michael Mann movie. It (laughs) literally just ends with the thing like there is no denouement whatsoever. It is just straight up like you know, guy gets blasted credits like there just isn't much of anything there, which is kind of. You know, it, it feels like just truncated to the point of nothing, you know? We lost and, Patrick. Oh, no, sorry. I, oh, I, 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 I <laughs> muted myself for a second. Uh, I was like, oh, but that's how all creature features end, too. So, like, yeah, there's a certain irony to it that even if that was just because of a, comp- a compromise with the studio, like if they were going for the creature feature cut, those movies are just like the great yeah. evil has been destroyed, thrown into the portal, exploded, what have you. And then two teenagers or whatever hold each other uh as they look over the the fire uh uh that that has been wrought and then the the credits scroll over but the the other thing is that also the villagers come back and it's like they're all fine again like the priest who just (laughs) ate his goddamn dog is just like back to normal it's like dude do you want to sit with this for a minute are you like are you okay to be coming out here again i don't know It's, it's just very weird the ending, uh, so this is the TV cut ending that made it out there. It's only about like three or four minute more minutes of footage, uh, and it comes at the very end of this after even the stuff that you see uh, where, you know, the villagers come running out. And all it really is is Ava walking back into the keep and sort of descending into, I guess, the tomb area, which is where, you know, Molisar was being kept, and discovering uh, Glaken's body who is, you know, just kind of lying on the ground and it it ends with him just kind of opening his eyes. And I think there's supposed to be a thing in there that sort of indicates that, like, 
he can see his reflection in the water or something that sort of indicates that he's supposed to be mortal again. But the way it's shot here, and also because this fan edit is extremely bad footage, like it's taken off a fucking VHS rip of a TV recording. Uh, <laughs> it's not, it doesn't, you can't really see what's going on too much. Yeah. But nonetheless, they are trying to indicate that there is something more going on there. And all you really get is that like Scott Glenn's not dead. So it's a happy ending. They're trying to be kind like, of. and canonically, He's not supposed to die, Dia, and he becomes like he becomes a mortal man and tries to live a normal life with his love until he is summoned back to the battle uh, late in life. Is that uh, basically yeah, what like, happens? I know, there? I know. He comes back in because um, there's a whole bunch. There's like two parallel. Like, there's two parallel um, stories because there's also the repairman Jack, which is like uh, Wilson's. It's kind of like just like you know like this this kind of like you know handy like which honestly the repairman Jack is much more uh Michael Mann they're kind of you know more supernatural procedurals about this guy who kind of fixes problems like they came after the keep but much later um if I remember correctly um but like they were the that would be the the character that Michael Mann should have made into a movie because it is about this kind of this guy who his job is dealing with supernatural bullshit. Um, but at the end of the keep, um, uh, first of all, he, he take, he like in, in the book, he, he has his magic sword and he just swings and just like, you know, does the like, you know, samurai movie shit where he is the one stroke perfectly through Rassalam and then Rassalam just like goes <laughs> into like ash and dust and it's just gone. And, um, then like then he falls he falls into like some rocks I think and like his body like it looks broken and rent but like, actually he's not he survived and he's okay and Magda's like oh no um, but then yeah he's immortal and just kind of goes about his shit until uh, Rasalam comes back so that's the movie roll credits yep uh, <laughs> that's it it's it's a strange thing and I think at the end it it very much does feel again like sort of a classically Michael Mann ending but nothing. Like parts of it also feel like in so many places, like he is pulling from a lot of different influences whose styles maybe he admires, but hasn't mastered and will over the arc of his career never really try to master again. Um, yeah. Like I think there's there there's parts of this where like, uh, you know, there are elements of man wants to like, call to mind uh things like you know cabinet of dr caligari or uh a lot of fritz fritz long's work and that's just not the mode he's in uh and it's sort of an awkward fit here and i think it's it's one reason sort of the, the dreamlike fairy tale aesthetic um it's it's such a funny direction for him because he's a good photographer and he you see what he's going for, but I'm not sure that's really the the mode he excels at. I'm not sure he um, I'm not I'm not sure man is a director who has a vision for dreamlike fairy tales. Um, despite of a few nice shots in this movie, I don't think that's the the direction his his imagination runs um, in that way. I think he, he, he learns to know his limits in a way that like Christopher Nolan never does. Christopher right. Nolan does think he has a, a marvelous imagination. Inception is the product of someone who's like, I have an incredible concept. We'll inhabit the world of dreams and it will be a sequence of nested Michael Mann movies. Yeah. Um, 
I do think it is very funny. I, I, I am I am a Nolan enjoyer, but and I do like Inception. But I also do think it's funny that the most wild dream sequence that dude can come up with is a Call of Duty level. It's just like, yeah. here's a snow level. Have fun. We're just going to shoot some guys. That's a dream. Except like, I'm sure he's like, not a vulgar video game, please. No. On Her Majesty's Secret Service okay. is, of course, what I am paying homage <laughs> to. But yeah, but like, man, to his credit, kind of recognizes at the end of this, perhaps scarred by the experience. He's like, fuck it. I'm making procedurals for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, I don't like I get that. And I, I, I could totally see why he would never want to touch something like this again. But there is a part of me deep down, especially after watching this again, like it has rekindled that feeling. I would love to see what, you know, 35 years into his career, Michael Mann would do with something like this now. Like what lessons would he apply to this? What would he try differently? What do we try to do? It might still be a total failure. So you, you want you want to see uh, Michael Mann's Prometheus is what you want to see. I, yeah, kind of. <laughs> I kind of do. I, like pro, I'm pro, I am I am pro Prometheus. I want to make it very clear. Yeah, I think that movie rules. It's got some problems, but I think that movie like <laughs> largely beautiful movie fucking rocks um and i love a lot of the ideas in it and so i'm with you like i i would be so like what is someone scarred by that experience like doesn't have their ridley scott alien breakout moment in the same way that maybe was envisioned uh what do you do when you come back having now actually having a house style right like where this movie you look back on a movie like thief and can see where the house style comes from but like what does someone like him do when they revisit uh, you know, you know, material like that's a little more fantastical um, than what he's played with in the past. Like that, that would be that would be really fascinating because it does. You correct me if I'm wrong. It does seem like he's sort of like mined out. Uh, uh, you know, what he became known for isn't really working as much in the last couple of films that that, that he's done. And maybe it would be the kind of time to like do something from left field that yeah. you know, Michael Mann's doing what um, would be would be interesting. Michael Mann's in his five-picture deal to do the Dark Tower series. Gosh, dust. Be still my heart. <laughs> he could do it. But so here's the funny thing, though. Having said he's burned by the experience and it seems like he never wants to do anything like it again. The next film on our list is Manhunter. Mm-hmm. And arguably, he's not done with horror, nor is he done with like hallucinatory dreams of violence and obsession. And in a lot of ways, I think you could you could argue that like Manhunter is like the more successful version of his like horror masterpiece uh, in, in some ways. But it works because it is shot through the lens of man's own fixations, which is on obsessive dudes mm-hmm. uh, and the destruction that they unleash. Uh, but for now, we have we have sealed the keep. Uh, the evil it. has been defeated. <laughs> uh, we have uh, we are we are ready to watch the namesake film uh, for this series, and yeah. So as as we've alluded to, uh, Manhunter is a serial killer suspense movie that follows a traumatized Will Graham, uh, who is summoned from retirement following the Hannibal Lecter case, and this is where all things get weird. Was there was Hannibal Lecter a household name before this this movie no. had been I mean, made? the books were out and, you know, like the obviously like Red Dragon, which Manhunter is based on, was out. But this is the first Hannibal Lecter movie. Yeah, which is why he ends up being a. 
uh, supporting cast member in this, memorably played by Brian Cox. But yeah, it is a Will Graham movie, really, not a Hannibal Lecter movie. Uh, and like, basically, it is it is following his return to serial killer profiling work as he begins trying to solve a a string of home invasion uh, killings. And this film is probably the end of, I guess, what we'll call Michael Mann's Tangerine Dream period. And if it is, it certainly takes things out on a high note. Uh, and thematically, that'll complete this era. But then we do have a decision uh, before us. Do we want to touch on Michael Mann's TV work? Like, if, you, if we're discussing, like, the the pilot of Miami Vice is like a two-hour Michael Mann movie uh, yeah. in, in, in some ways. And even though he doesn't have the director's credit on the opener of Crime Story, again, a very quintessentially Michael Mann thing. And I'm curious, uh, listeners can write in as well, but I'm curious the temperature in the room. Uh, do we view those as essential to the story of Michael Mann as a creator? Is LA Takedown in here too? Yeah, so that's the thing. I I I am of the mind that it is, and I don't think we have to watch the entire all five seasons of Miami Vice to get there. But <laughs> no, you know, I think the pilot and maybe a couple of select episodes is probably enough to to get us through that. Um, I don't know as much about Crime Story, but I feel like there is probably some value in it. I don't think we can do Heat if we don't do LA Takedown because LA Takedown is one of the only examples I can point to of a person literally like producing, filming, shooting the rough draft of one of their greatest movies. All right. Cause I know that's the other one I've never seen. So if, once I see LA takedown, I've seen it all. Yes. Um, do you, do you feel that, do, do you have the, the, the film snobbery around TV where those are, those are his lesser vulgar works or are you game? Uh, no, to because be I checking think out some the, TV? the thing is, I think the television is actually, I think the television is essential in order to establish Michael Mann. Michael Mann yeah. comes out not of not like Thief and 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 The Keep. Those were trial runs of a you know a director who would is just like not quite getting not quite there yet. He is figuring out what he wants and what he wants to do. And then Miami Vice, mm-hmm. you know, and like things like Miami Vice, LA Takedown. Those are things that actually allow him the space to become Michael Mann. That's true. And eventually, of course, we will have to talk about the Miami Vice movie, which will be totally incoherent if we have not discussed at yeah, least the way the series opens. Um, so that's sort of the the roadmap from here. Uh, but yeah, so n- the next next one up, even though it's a little bit out of sync because the TV where the TV stuff starts happening in this period following the keep, uh, we will complete the Tangerine Dream era with Manhunter and then we'll start getting into uh, what he did on tv and then we will uh, start seeing what the next stage of his career holds for for us here on manhunting uh which is a podcast on waypoint plus made possible by you our backers uh as always we thank you for uh your support and hope you are enjoying the show uh feel free to send us questions at some point we will we will start regularly opening letters about michael mann uh and we will have your mansers Oh my god. Look forward to our Mansers podcast. Are we gonna reach into the manhole to get the Mansers? Yes, or that's guess- where they live. Perfect. Uh so look forward to that on the Waypoint Plus feed. Uh until then, uh thanks for listening. I was trying to think of some sort of keep like 
play on words to end things with, but I, I came up empty. Keep on trucking. As Jurgen Prock now should have. <laughs>